Okay, so we are in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're finishing up on this teaching of David and Goliath. So we, we talked about the main fight last week, and we, we saw how calculated this attack was by David on Goliath. He wasn't messing around with this thing. I mean, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He, he feigned... To, he had Goliath think that he was going to attack him with this shepherd's stick. So Goliath never took out his, uh, his javelin. And little did he know that David was going to hit him with a, with a stone from a slate. And, uh, uh, and David was constantly on the move while he was doing this. So a very calculated attack. So we covered that last week. And let's start reading from 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Reading from verse, verse uh, 48. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into the bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling of the stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took the sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistine as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shareim, even to Gath and Ekron. And the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. And David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapon in his tent. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, Whose son is this young man? And Abner said, By your life, O king, I do not know. And the king said, You inquire whose son the youth is. So David, so when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, and the Philistine's head was still in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And he answered, and he said, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Okay, so David prevails over the Philistine. And David did just as he said he was going to do. He was going to cut off the Philistine's head. That's what he had said that he would do, and he did it. And it says that, that when he had cut off the Philistine's head, the, other, the Philistine army was in such shock that their champion was now dead that they took off running and... Many of them were killed on the way, and it says that they ran, and they, they ran to, back to their cities of Gath and Ekron. And so, there were five city-states, remember, that the Philistines had. Three of them were along the coast, two of them were inland, and the two inland were Gath and Ekron. And so, those were the nearest of the five city-states that they could run back and be protected by the walls. And so, that is, that's as far as Israel went in, in pursuing them. Then they came back and they plundered the camps. So, it says in verse 54, Then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapon in his tent. And so he's still carrying the head. Now remember, this is a very big man, so it's not just a regular sized head. This is, it's, it's a huge head. And he's probably you know, carrying it by his hair, and he's got this, because this is his prize. I mean, you see this picture here, and this... You know, it sounds terrible in 2010, how politically incorrect to gloat over the death of a human being. Times are different. Times were different when I grew up, and we said things when I grew up that you can't say today because it sounds harsh and wrong. But imagine uh, uh, 
if, if you have something uh, uh, that's 3,000 years ago, 2,800 years ago, I mean, times were different. And God worked even within the times. And this is what people did. This was the prize. And David did it. And you don't see God just getting so distressed like, Oh, look at what David's doing. I mean, no, I mean, God, this, is, this was the time. This is the way things went. And, and uh, uh, so David's carrying this head. It says he brings the head back to Jerusalem. Now, this is a very interesting verse. Why would he bring it back to Jerusalem? Jerusalem was not under Israel's control at this time. Jerusalem was still occupied by the Jezebites. It was, it was in fact David when he later became king. So, at, so about 10 or 12 years from this, this time point, 10, 12, 14 years, it was that long before David had conquered Jerusalem. It was still uh, 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 occupied by the Jebusites. But we do know, as it says earlier in this book, that the, the, the tabernacle was at Node. Node is, is right up on, on the Mount of Olives, which is just across the valley. I would say it's, um, it, it's maybe a mile walk because you go down, you know, you, you don't go straight down this, this, this hill and, and then up into the city. It kind of goes around. So it's maybe a mile walk from the Mount of Olives from, from, uh, from there on, on uh, where, the, where Node is to Jerusalem. But it's maybe half a mile as the crow flies. So it's not far, so maybe he brought it there, but it was close enough to Jerusalem to name it as Jerusalem. Or maybe he put it on a stake outside the walls of Jerusalem just to let the Jebusites know what he was going to do to them eventually. We don't know. We have no idea. But this was not an Israeli city. This was not an Israeli city at that time. And it says that he took the, the sword and he put it in his tent. And we know later on in this book that Goliath's sword ends up in the tabernacle on Node. This is where Mount Scopus is. Hebrew University has their dormitories right up there right now where, where Node used to be. And he takes this, but then Abner, so, so Saul inquires, whose son is this? Now Saul had this discourse with David before and remember, David had played the harp and Saul loved him. He's not asking, who is this child or who is this young guy? He's saying, who is his father? He asks it repeatedly. So in verse 55, it says that he asked Abner, the commander of his army, he said, whose son is this young man? And then Abner says, I don't, I don't know. And then, and then again in verse 56, the, the king says, inquire whose son the youth is. And then again, in verse 58, whose son are you, young man? So he knew David. He wanted to understand, what family is this from? And so sometimes when I have a, a particularly you know, interesting student to me, someone who, who, I'll say, let me meet your parents. You know, when they're coming, are they coming for homecoming or, or are they coming for parents weekend? I want to meet them. Bring them to my office. And so if, if, if you students, you know, if your parents are coming for parents weekend, bring them to the class. Bring them to my house for lunch. I would like to meet them. Especially students that particularly touch me. They're, you know, they're particularly talented or they, you know, we've resonated in certain ways. I want to meet their parents because that means something to meet their family. It's not just the individual. I want to meet the parents because I look at them and I say, you know, how could you have such a remarkable child? I want to meet the parents that have helped to form this remarkable child. 
this is what I want to do. I want to get to know them. And this has happened. My, my oldest daughter was really quite an amazing young lady, and people used to come to our home to meet us because they were so impressed with my daughter. And I, you know, I felt kind of good about myself. Then I had just three regular kids and no parents would come. <laughs> so, I, I mean, they're just regular folks. I mean, that, my, my oldest daughter was really quite unusual in, in, you know, she was always reading Shakespeare and this and that. And, you know, just for the fun of it, you know, without an assignment, she's just always surrounded by books. But anyway, so he wanted to know what is this family. Plus, he had promised in verse 25 of that same chapter, it talks about how the king would enrich the man who killed Goliath. The king would give his daughter to the man who killed Goliath, and the king would set his family free of all taxes in Israel. So, you know, maybe he, he wanted to inquire who, who is this guy so he could set his family free of taxes, but we know that none of this actually took place. David was not given the oldest daughter of, of the queen, who, uh, 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 the oldest daughter of King Saul. He was not given her. David was was uh, uh, not given great riches because eventually David was offered the second daughter of, of King Saul. And he says, I, I have no money for a dowry. He was not enriched. So David was actually promised all these things in verse 25, should he kill Goliath, and he never received it. And in fact, David confirmed this promise that in verse 25, and he confirmed it two other times. David wanted to be sure that he heard right exactly what would be done for him if he killed Goliath. Because you look in verse 25, it says that, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And then it says in verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for him who kills him. And then look down in verse 30. Then he turned away from him to another, and he said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. Three times David confirmed he would be made rich, he would get the king's daughter, and his family would be free of taxes. And guess what? Psych, he got nothing. He got none of this. So if you have ever been promised something and they've not delivered it, this is part of life. This happens. It happens all the time. People say they're going to do something. It doesn't. Don't take it so involved that, that you just get so bent out of shape that you'll never deal with these people again. I mean, this is life. People do this. Not that we are to do this, but it will happen to you in life. People will say they'll do this for you, they'll do that, and they never deliver. They never do. Some do, but, but generally they don't, especially when these promises are big. And David dealt with it. And so he meets up with, with, with Saul. Saul finds out what families he's from. Now let's look at chapter 18 and see what's becoming of him. So this is a big day in David's life. You know, he's got, he's got the head. He's not letting this thing go. They probably, you know, wanted, no, I'll take this. This is mine. You know, give me that head. And he carries it all the way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's about 20, 25 miles away. You know, this stayed with David. And he, the sword, I mean, this sword is probably, you know, like six feet long. I mean, David's carrying this sword with him. He's not letting that go. Chapter, eight, chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. 
So, so uh, Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Okay, so, so remember, Jonathan is, is Saul's son, a very brave warrior himself because he had attacked garrisons formerly. Uh, very brave warrior. And he is next in line to be king. He gives it up. He gives it up. He makes some covenant with David and he loves David. And Jonathan is about 10 years senior to David. So David is 15, 16 years old, something like that. Jonathan's at least mid-twenties to late-twenties at this point. And Jonathan, though, loves this guy, just admires him. Probably had seen him in the house before playing the harp for Saul. Now really admires him as as a mighty warrior and just takes off his robe and gives it to him. This is an indication that I'm yielding to you. Jonathan had this heart that, that, sure, certain things were established, but, you know, God is doing something with you. And it says that he loved him as himself. This is one of the few close friends that David would have. I know some of you have many friends that will be your friends for life, and others have just a few friends. And it's okay. God has made us all differently. That's okay. And and, uh, uh, to those of us that have just a few friends, you know, sometimes that's all we need. And others just have lots of friends. And I admire people who have lots of friends. I wish I could have lots of friends. It's just that I scare them away. You know, but, but, it's, but God has made us differently. This was a particular relationship that David had with this other guy. And, and they were warriors together. And so it says that Saul now never let David return home. It says previously David would go back and forth and minister to Saul and <clears throat> there in, in, in Gibeah of Saul. And he would minister to him and then go back to Bethlehem. But now he's not letting him go back and forth. And this is exactly what Samuel had said would happen that when you have a king, he's going to take your best men and draft them and put them into his, his army. And they said, no, we still want a king. And he said, they're going to exact taxes from you to pay for his whole administration. They said, we still want a king. Well, they got what they, they asked for. <clears throat> now, now uh, um, in verse 5, it says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant, servants. So Saul proclaims, David is now the head of the army. And everybody was okay with this, because this guy was such an amazing talent to have taken on Goliath. And he set him over him, and it says, David prospered. That word prospered, if you look in the NIV, I think it says uh, uh, successful, right? Made him successful. Isn't that what it says in the NIV? And And... And my, my Bible has a footnote, and many NIVs also have a footnote. It says, behaved wisely. And I, I spoke to my daughter over Skype this morning. She lives in Israel. And I said, get, me your, get your Hebrew Bible and tell me what this word is really in Hebrew. She said, it, it has to do with wisdom. He behaved himself wisely. She said that it could speak about prosperity and success. The main meaning of that word, though, is wisdom. He behaved himself wisely. He prospered. He succeeded. So this is a big day. He's made head of the army. He kills Goliath. He's got the head of Goliath. He's got, he's got the sword of Goliath. He's got Jonathan's robe. He, he's got Jonathan's armor. And he's made, you know, this, this great success. Verse 6. 
Now it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and they said, Saul has slain his thousand and David his ten thousand. Then, David, then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily on Saul, and he raved in the midst of his house while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of thousands, and he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. So, you see that this is an amazing couple of days in David's life. He ends up going back to, to Gibeah of Saul. And the women start coming out of the city. Why the women come out of the city? Because they didn't know if they were going to have the husbands after these battles. And so they, they come out of the city and they're, they're with their tambourines. And they're saying, Saul has slain his thousand and David his ten thousand. And instead of Saul rejoicing, he gets jealous of the women ascribing ten thousand to David and only a thousand to him. Why? Because, because conceit starts going to our head. And this is why it is very important for us as believers to rejoice in another's success. This keeps us from becoming conceited. C.S. Lewis says the best way to keep from, from pride and conceit and bitter jealousy is to rejoice in the other's success to the extent that you would had you received that success. And I have done that and it changes the whole tenor. So, say, say a faculty member wins, wins an award, I will write them a letter and say, I am so proud of you for what you've gotten, and I'm so happy that you have won this award. And in my doing that act, it keeps me from saying, well, why did they win the award? Why didn't I win the award? You see, you see and, and, and you may say, well, you win enough awards. And then, well, it's never enough. <laughs> because, because pride comes in, but if you rejoice in another's success to the extent that you would in yours, if they're having a little party, a get-together, because they're excited about it, go to that party and rejoice with them and say, I am happy for you. I am happy that you have won this. This will keep you from bitter jealousy and, and keep you from having this, this conceit in yourself. When another has, has done well or achieved well or done well on an exam, you find out about it, say, good job, I am so happy that you have done well. I'm so happy that you got this raise, that you got this promotion. And pray for them. Say, God bless them and bless them in this. And it keeps you from bitter jealousy. And what happens is people see this response and I'll come to them, I'll, you know, right away congratulate my colleagues when they receive these awards and, you know, they're a bit taken back. They, they, they're, they're just, wow, thank you. And it does something to them. You want to be able to do this. So, so Saul could have stopped all this jealousy. And what happens with jealousy, it begins to fester in here. And then it manifests itself in other ways, like from our mouth, like from our attitude. With, in Saul's case, you know, here he is king. He said, I'll just kill him. 
I'll just pin them to the wall. It says it was on the next day in verse 10. So it makes it very clear. This isn't five years later. The very next day. So here is David prospering. You want to know what prosperity is in the kingdom of God? We hear a lot about this prosperity teaching. This is prosperity in the kingdom of God. Prosperity is that we continue to prosper and act wisely in the midst of assault. In the midst of trauma. That we can continue to do this. Here it says, David, you know, here he is just playing for Saul. He throws the spear. David has to run. And it says, Saul did this twice. This is the first occasion. Another occasion we'll read about later. And so, he was now afraid of David. And so now, therefore it says, in verse 13, Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of, of, of a thousand. So removed him now from being head over the, all of the army where he'd sit in Gibeah with Saul to being commander of a thousand. Why? This puts him in harm's way. This is a good way to have him killed. You put him as a commander of a thousand, not, no longer you know, sitting in Gibeah with Saul. Because Saul was afraid of him now and didn't trust him and took him out of his presence, now set him, so demoted him. Have you ever been demoted? And this is painful. Look at David's response. David faithfully served in this position. Wherever David was. And the beautiful thing about David's life is you never see him here going to Saul and saying, you rotten, stinking king. David, when we read the book of Psalms, you see the inside of David. And David is pouring out his heart to who? To God. Pouring out again and again his heart to God. You see this. He's pouring this out. But in this context, you see what David is doing. And in verse 15, in in, in verse uh, 14, it says, David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. And this prospering again is this behaving wisely. This success and prosperity is wise behavior. And in verse 15, and when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. He wasn't just prospering, he was prospering greatly. Greatly. You want to know what it is to prosper in the kingdom of God? It is to do God's work and be about His work to act wisely. And God brings you up. In spite of attack, none of us is ever free. None of us is ever free from attack, from accusation, from people promising things and not giving them. And David's life was far from perfect. But it was really pretty good. It was really pretty good. And the beautiful thing about it where it's, it's not perfect. You know, David runs and he spends some time with the Philistines and he feigns madness and he, he has all sorts of troubles in his life. But the beautiful thing about it is, I have hope now. Because if he had been perfect, I would think I, I could never measure up to that. But because he is imperfect, it gives me something that I can do. Now look at this. Let's follow on this, this thought of prosperity. Look in... in uh, in Proverbs chapter 1. In Proverbs chapter 1. You know, it's just a, a beautiful portion that tells us something about wisdom. And it tells us the, the importance of wisdom. But in Proverbs chapter 1, it says in verse 1. Proverbs 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice and equity to give prudence to the naive 
to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here's what he says in verse 4. To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. It says, David behaved himself wisely. You will see so often in the scriptures, in Proverbs in particular, coupled with wisdom is discretion. That I will do certain things, but certain things I will not do. I will act more discreetly than the other. I will not say any thought that comes to my mind if it's, if it's going to hurt somebody. I can't do that. I have to act differently. Sometimes my, one of my children came home and was saying something about somebody at school and I said, wait a minute. We don't say that. We are different. I understand kids at school may be saying that, but we as a family are different. We don't say that about other people. We are different. As believers in Christ, we have to be different. There are certain things that we can do and certain things that we refrain from doing. With wisdom comes discretion. And this is good for the youth. This is good for us. With wisdom comes discretion. And God promises, God promises over and over again in His Word, He promises blessing to those who follow Him. Blessing to those who follow His Word. And, and, and uh, so, for example, in Psalm 1, it says, How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he'll meditate day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. That is a promise in Psalm 1 of prosperity. That we will be, we can be, if we meditate, it's very specific, it says if we meditate on the Word of God, we will prosper. We will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which prospers. But with prosperity comes this idea of behaving wisely. This is what prosperity is. To do that which is right, to behave wisely. People will see the prosperity. This is what David had. He behaved Differently, He didn't lash out at Saul. He had many opportunities to kill Saul. In fact, he had encouragement from all around to kill Saul. He would not do it. He prospered. You want prosperity in your life? Is there anyone here who doesn't want prosperity in their life? Okay. You want prosperity? There is a specific way. And part of it is learning to behave wisely. God promises prosperity. It says in, uh, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it, and then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. This book of the law shall be your meditation day and night. Why? So that you can be careful to do according to all that's written in it, in Joshua 1.8. And then you'll make your way prosperous and then you'll have success. This is what prosperity is. But prosperity is, n is not, it's going well and it's going to go well all the time. Prosperity means you're going to get spears thrown at you. 
Prosperity means you may be demoted for something, but you will prosper. I was sitting at dinner with uh, Mrs. Harrison Friday night. Do you remember my colleague was asking me these questions? So this is this, this old professor that's, um, he's over 70 years old, so even I would call him old. And, and uh, um, he had come to my seminar on, on campus a, a couple of weeks ago, and he sat there, he says, you know, your, your religion really seems to help you in your life. I said, yeah, it does. It does. I said, for me, to take this word and apply it in my life means a lot. And, you know, he sees it. He sees something here. And this guy doesn't believe any of this. You know, he's told me about this in the past. He doesn't believe any of it. But, he sees the results of it. This is what Saul was going through. It says, Saul feared David. Even tried demoting him, putting him in harm's way. He tries killing himself, putting him in harm's way. And again and again, what we're going to see is David is going to prosper while Saul makes it his life's intent. Here is the intent of the king, is to get David killed. I mean, can you imagine living under that? I mean, how many of us would look at our lives and say, I'm prospering? I mean, if you knew that, say, the head of the CIA made it his intent to have you killed. To, you, you know, he, he called up Jason Bourne <laughs> to have you taken out. I mean, this would be a really scary thing. This is what happened to David. But the scripture says he prospered. How can this be? Prosperity is not free of all trouble. Prosperity is walking with God in the midst of trouble, in the midst of adversity. It is walking with God and behaving Wisely, walking rightly. There are great truths in here that if you pick these up, if you walk by them, your life will be much, much better. Much better. You will not be without adversity, but you will prosper. It will change your attitude so that you don't have to go every day to the, to the water cooler and sit around and complain about the boss. Because you have a whole different attitude. It changes the way you work. And you know what it does? It causes you to love your work. It really does. I don't know anything that I would rather do in life than the job that I have. I love my job. I love my office. I love my students. I love what I do. That doesn't mean that I love every aspect of what I do. But there's nothing that I would rather do. You can have that same joy. You don't have to be like most Americans, not liking their work or using it as a means to an end so you can get rich and you know, sit around in some ranch and be happy. I don't see how people can do that. You know, I speak to these guys in finance. Well, you know, this is just a means to an end. I say, what's the end? Well, you know, so that I can do the things that I like. Just travel and... You know, this is not our business. Our business, as believers, is touching other people. They don't come to us. We need to go to them. And I have no problem with a ranch and all of this if you get your behind up and start serving the Lord. You've got to do certain things to be active for the Lord. And that is where real life is. As we give of ourselves, we experience real life. If all we want to do is set things up to be comfortable for me, we will never be comfortable. We will never be comfortable that way. Mother Teresa was giving continuously to other people. She never went to the psychiatrist and said, you know, it's about me. How come I never get anything? No, because she was too busy giving out. A very fulfilled life. As you give out, you will receive much. This word is true. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for your word and the truth of it. I pray for these young people in the name of Jesus that you would so fire them up to be committed to you and to your life and to your word. That they would see prosperity as they meditate on the word of God and obey it. That they would be careful to do according to all that's written in it so that they may have success. Father, I pray that you speak to their hearts. And I ask you to pray yourselves, even right now, that if you want this type of prosperity, that you ask God to do this in your life. That whatever the adversity that may come your way, or you may be going through even right now, that you would walk rightly in this and offer that up to the Lord. So you go ahead and pray.